0: On this episode of the End of Tourism Podcast.
1: As we hurtle down the path of neoliberal apocalypse, we're more and more exposed to the sense of alienation. And so what does that mean? It means that we end up feeling like we don't know who we are. We don't know where we are. We don't know who Mm. who the people around us are. Mm. We're just sort of floating. We're atomized. We don't have roots. The connections that we do have feel fleeting and shallow. And it produces, obviously, a deep sense of, like, misery in a lot of people, Mm. whether they know it or not, I would say. But it also produces a longing for connections that feel real and that feel authentic. And I think that the turn towards identitarianism that has become more and more apparent over the last, like, decade is a consequence of people feeling like they have no connections and they really want connections. They want to feel embedded in something. And so they're looking for other forms of community that they can belong to other than the communities that they actually live in, because those communities that they actually live in have started to feel so disconnected and illusory.
0: Welcome to The End of Tourism, conversations on wanderlust, exile, and radical hospitality. A quick reminder that the podcast lives on a gift economy model, which means that anyone anywhere can listen regardless of their economic situation your gift ensures it stays that way. Free of advertisements and members-only paywalls, it allows me to devote a great deal of time to this project to pay for the software and hardware that makes the podcast possible, as well as all of the production and post-production labor. In order to keep the project fed, you can subscribe by making monthly, annual, or one-time offerings at chrischristu.substack.com or you'll also have access to my writing on these and other subjects including food culture, psychedelics, media ecology, and myth. You can also support us by leaving a review for the pod on Apple or Spotify, by sharing the episodes with your friends, and by following us on social media via the handle, The End of Tourism. On this episode of the podcast, my guests are Clementine Morgan and Jay Le Soleil. Clementine is a writer and public intellectual based in Montreal, Canada. She writes popular and controversial essays about culture, politics, ethics, relationships, sexuality, and trauma. A passionate believer in independent media, she's been making zines since the year 2000 and is the author of several books. She's known for her iconic white text on a black background mini essays on Instagram. One of the leading voices on the Canadian left and one half of the fucking cancelled podcast, Clementine is an outspoken critic of cancelled culture and a proponent of building solidarity across difference. She is a socialist, a feminist, and a vegan for the animals and the earth. Jay is a writer artist and designer from Montreal and is the author of the sub stack com. that's j-a-y-l-e-s-o-l-e-i-l dot com as well as the zine series what else is there to live for. Jay is also the co-host of the fucking cancelled podcast. Welcome to the pod Clementine Jay it's an honor to have you both here today Each of your work, both individually and together, has been a great influence on mine, and definitely eye-opening, and if I can say so, much needed in our time. So thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, man. Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks for having us. So
0: I'd like to start, if we can, by asking you both where you find yourselves today and what the world looks like for you through each of your eyes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we both find ourselves in Montreal. Mm which is where we live. I was working in homeless shelters for years and then um, got let go because I tried to unionize the one I was working at. Actually, I succeeded in unionizing the one I was working at. Mm-hmm. And they mysteriously did not have any money to renew my contract after that. And yeah, so I'm writing and I just launched a new solo podcast about like world history outside of the West. And so I've been working on that. It's called Dumplings and Domination, which are two things that human beings love. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah so that's that's what I'm up to
2: yeah so I'm also yeah I find myself in Montreal in the snow and I guess relevant to the topics of this podcast one of the things I'm grappling with now is my perpetual existence as a unilingual anglophone in the city of Montreal which is a bilingual city but it's a French city like actually mm. <laughs> And I'm planning on having a child and I'm planning to have this child here. And so I'm facing the dilemma of being like an English speaker whose child is not going to just be an English speaker. And so I really need to learn French basically. So this is my struggle because being 37 and only speaking one language my entire life, it's like super hard to learn another language. And I've really, really struggled a couple times I've made an attempt to learn French and it's like really frustrating, but... That is one of the things I'm grappling with. I feel like it's relevant to the podcast because in many ways, even though I've lived in Montreal for like almost seven years, there's a way in which I still am kind of like a tourist here because I haven't learned the language. Mm. So will I complete my transition into becoming (laughs) Quebecois?
1: Yeah, maybe so. (laughs) Only time will tell.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I was just reading this biography, Ivan Illich, is like, was an Austrian philosopher, and he said that like, trying to learn a new language, especially if you're immersed in the place, is the greatest measure or degree of poverty that one can undertake because of the degree of dependence that they have on other people. And not just dependence, but like dependence on their hospitality, assuming mm. it exists in order to you know, be able to understand what, yeah. what you're saying and, and communicate in that way.
2: Like Montreal is interesting because... At least in the neighborhood that I live and in many places in Montreal, it's functionally bilingual. So it's not like learning in an immersive environment as if you went somewhere and everybody's speaking that language. So you kind of just have to, or you won't be able to communicate. Like you have to learn. Mm. Here it's like, you know, when I'm fumbling around trying to speak French people just start speaking English to me because even if they're a Francophone, like at least in the neighborhoods where I live, most people are bilingual and they speak better English than I do French. So they will accommodate me, which is polite of them and also does not help me learn, you know,
1: Mm. whereas the government of Quebec will not accommodate you.
2: The the government (laughs) will not accommodate you at all. And so like, it's only in circumstances where like I desperately need to understand Mm. where like there's no, there's absolutely no accommodation. So,
0: (laughs) Mm. And that kind of touches on my next question, which is, you know, in terms of the travels uh, that you two have, has there been that degree of poverty elsewhere? I mean, I imagine you might have traveled to other places, maybe in Canada, maybe elsewhere. What have your travels taught you each, if anything? About the
1: world, about your lives, about culture? Yeah, I had kind of an unusual relationship with travel because As a kid, I moved to a different country every, like, three or four years because of my parents' work. And so, yeah, I grew up, like, in Asia and not just, like, dipping into a place and then, like, leaving right away, but spending years of my life in each country, right? And, like, learning the languages and stuff. And so, yeah, I think that was uh, quite an unusual way to kind of experience travel as a kid. And I think that it did definitely have a lot of impact on me because I think that travel in general, I think is a a wonderful and amazing thing, you know, which is why people like to do it. And it can be really profound for your mind and your understanding of the world and of other people, you know, but obviously there's travel and and then there's travel. I feel really grateful that I was able to see so much of the world by living there, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that it was really important for me in my kind of embodied understanding that other people and other parts of the world are, you know, just as real and just Mm. as important and just as embedded in in history as I am. Mm. And as like the people are in my passport country, which happens to be Canada, you know? Mm.
2: Yeah. I've traveled a little bit, but I think for me, like when I was young, I was too crazy to travel, you know? And I truly mean that like I have complex PTSD and like as much as my life was so chaotic and like really like you know on fucking cancel Jay and I talk about how we're both alcoholics in recovery like when I was drinking I always wanted to be someone who traveled and my life was very like chaotic and full of violence and danger and all those types of things but the PTSD made it really hard to do anything because Mm -hmm. I was always scared you know and being a woman traveling Like in recovery, I've wanted to try to travel more, but the combination of one being a woman traveling alone, it does come with certain risks to it. You're more vulnerable in certain ways and then add that to the PTSD. It's like it's super anxiety producing, you know, so it's something that I've done a little bit, but not as much as I would have liked to and i guess we'll see like what the future holds with that one thing is is that like i learned to drive pretty late i learned to drive in my 30s and once i learned to drive going on road trips was actually a way that really opened up travel for me because having my car with me gave me this sense of like safety basically that i could leave a situation like i was there with my car so i had like the independence to like not be dependent on like strangers because I was afraid of them, basically. But (laughs) we went on a podcast tour last year and drove like all across the United States in like a month and like drove down to like Arizona and like back up the West coast. And like, that was really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm, Beautiful. And thank you both. And so, you know, it might seem a little strange for you two to be invited on a podcast about tourism, migration, hospitality, Given that, you know, perhaps on the surface of things, your work doesn't appear to center around such things. But uh, I've asked you both to speak with me today, in part because I see a lot of parallels between what you've both referred to as the nexus in your work and what I refer to as a a touristic worldview. And so to start, I'm wondering if you two could explain for our listeners what the nexus is and its three main pillars.
2: So... In shorthand or in like common language you might call it social justice culture there's a lot of different ways that this culture has been talked about but it's a particular way of doing politics on the left or left of center and like jay and i come from inside this culture so we are coming from inside social justice culture being like Leftists and being queer people, and having existed in like progressive social justice spaces for our entire adult lives, basically. And basically, we're noticing that there wasn't really language to talk about some of the phenomenons that were happening inside social justice culture. Mm -hmm. Or even, you know, social justice culture itself doesn't really give itself a name. Like, we can call it social justice culture, or we could call it something else, but it doesn't really have a name that it, like, claims for itself. It basically describes itself as, like, just doing politics or like being morally correct, you you know, right. Yeah. Yeah, Being right. Mm -hmm. So we just started using the nexus as kind of like a placeholder for talking about a phenomenon that like, doesn't really have a name. And we were trying to describe like this social phenomenon that we were totally immersed in that there wasn't really language to describe. And we pulled out like three components that we saw interacting with each other to produce this phenomenon that we were calling the nexus and those pillars or components would be cancel culture, social media and identitarianism. So you may want to say more.
1: Yeah. And we were just noticing how like when those three components were interacting on the left, you know, they were producing a kind of like fourth thing that we were calling the nexus. And it's just like cancel culture was kind of this you know, this culture of disposability and very sort of like intense acrimony functioned to sort of like boundary the whole thing and to keep, you know, certain views out and keep certain views in and sort of like establish the boundaries of what was thinkable and not. And the identitarianism provided the sort of ideological underpinning of the whole thing, like a, a way of making sense of the world, a way of thinking about any problem and any issue, you know. And then social media was kind of the medium in which it was all taking place. And that was providing a lot of the kind of like the scaffolding of what it ended up looking like. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you both. And so mm-hmm. i like to start then, if I can, with with identitarianism. And, mm-hmm. you know, as it pertains to, I guess, the, the End of Tourism podcast and the way I, I've come to understand it is that to be a tourist isn't just to be a foreigner, but a stranger to the place one inhabits. And so in this sense, I feel that people can be tourists in their own homes. And to a large degree, the housing crisis, among many others, seems to enable and ennoble this. You know, people know that they won't be able to afford a rent increase, and so they don't bother getting to know their neighbors or participating in the community. And beyond that, community is often described in demographic terms, you know, the black community, the queer community, etc. But rarely anymore in terms of the diverse people that you actually live beside or near. Uh Mm -hmm. And so for me, this is where tourism not only hits home, but is kind of unveiled as maybe beginning at home. You know, it's not just an industry, but something akin to a lifestyle or, or culture, as you said, Jay, of disposability. And so In this context, what I understand is identitarianism seems to enable this kind of touristic mentality of not needing to think of myself as a person of consequence in my building or in my neighborhood because I'll be out of here in another year or two anyway, right? And so I'm curious what Mm. you two think of this idea and whether you think that identitarianism is a consequence of these crises that exist
1: today, like the housing crisis, like
0: landlordism, for example.
1: Yeah, I definitely think it's all connected and I think that I think that a, a huge part of all of this, right, is accelerating alienation that people mm-hmm. are experiencing under the dominant form of neoliberal capitalism. And alienation just describes this deep embodied sense of disconnection from oneself, from one's work, and from one's fellows. And this is a concept that goes all the way back to Marx. And before him, even, you know, but Marx, I think, correctly identified that capitalism had a mechanism within it that amplified this, this sense and created more of it. And I think that as we hurdle down the path of neoliberal apocalypse, we're sort of like more and more exposed to the sense of alienation. And so what does that mean? It means that we end up feeling like we don't know who we are. We don't know where we are. We don't know who Mm. who the people around us are. Mm. We're just sort of floating. We're atomized, you know. We don't have roots. The connections that we do have feel fleeting and shallow, you know. Mm. And it produces, obviously, a deep sense of, like, misery in a lot of people, Mm. whether they know it or not, I would say. But it also produces a longing for connections that feel real and that feel authentic, and I think that the turn towards identitarianism that has become more and more apparent over the last, like, decade or so, both on the left and the right, because I think that the rise of, like, the alt-right, for example, was very much an identitarian movement as well. Hmm. Um, it, yeah, it's that, that pivot towards identitarianism is a consequence of people feeling like they have no connections and they really want connections. They want to feel embedded in something, you know. And so they're looking for other forms of community. That they can belong to other than the communities that they actually live in, you know, because those communities that they actually live in have started to feel so disconnected and illusory, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I do have more to say about the concept of like authenticity and all of this, which I think is like really foundational to tourism, but I will pass the mic. Well, do you want to say something about that? Well, I feel like we're probably going to get into it later. Um,
2: Okay. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think when talking about identitarianism, it's useful to make the distinction between identitarianism and identity politics. And we make that distinction on the podcast. But in case listeners aren't really familiar with the term identitarianism, Mm -hmm. um, I think it's useful for us to be a little bit clear about what we mean. And basically, identitarianism is distinct from identity politics. So identity politics is just basically saying that identity matters when we're thinking about what is affecting people's lives, right? And when we're organizing politics, when we're trying to think of solutions where we can make the world better, identity is going to play a role. And that Mm. just means we're acknowledging that things like racism exists, homophobia exists, like sexism exists, that the ways that our lives are shaped are impacted by identity. And like, we agree with that. We're not against that as a framework. But identitarianism takes identity politics to a new place where it basically does two main things to it. One, it acts as if, identity groups are homogenous or share like very intense essential qualities, you know? So when you make a statement like the BIPOC community thinks this, Mm -hmm. you're being identitarian and you're also being essentialist because you're actually making a statement in which you're saying that billions of people share a view, which is incorrect And also, like, very disrespectful to the vast diversity of thought that exists within any identity group, right? Mm. So, it's actually, like, it's an expression of essentialism and this belief that, like, identity groups share essential qualities. And it erases, like, the vast political differences and personal differences that exist always within any identity group. And then secondly... Identitarianism acts as if identity is the primary or only way that power functions. So when we're trying to understand, like, what is wrong with the world and what is going on and why are we all suffering? Identitarianism encourages us to look first and maybe only at identity as the way in which power is divided and organized. Hmm. And so in this way, you know, we have people like basically collecting identity points And what I mean by that is like adding up their various identities to try to understand their lives and their access to power. So people will be like, okay, I have these identities that are considered marginalized identities and then I have these identities that are considered privileged identities. And so if I do some math, I'll be able to figure out where I stand in terms of power. Right. And this is a total oversimplification of the way that power works. Identity is probably impacting your life in various ways and and may have a role in like your access to power, but it is not the only thing. And it's not as simple as just adding and subtracting to try to figure this out. And many, many things are lost when we are only using identity as the way to understand power. Yeah. And so, like when you're talking about, I just wanted to say that like that what you said about people moving. I think is really fascinating because I moved like every year or two years, Hmm. my entire, like actually I kind of have it stopped because I've only lived where I currently live for like just about two years. So I've basically been doing that since I was 16. Um, I'm 37.
0: Wow. Wow. (laughs)
2: You know, and like, I don't mean cities, but I mean neighborhoods yep. and at least apartments, you know, and actually my current neighborhood, I've lived in probably the longest that I've ever lived anywhere, but I've still moved several times and I've managed to stay in the same neighborhood. But like over the course of my teenagers, all my entire twenties and into my thirties, like I was just constantly moving. And, you know, I, I had a sense of place in terms of the city I lived in, like I was living in Toronto for most of, for my twenties, but. I lived all over that fucking city, like Mm -hmm. all over that city, you know, I didn't live in any particular neighborhood. And so because of that, like I didn't really have that sense of like place and like there wasn't really a point in knowing my neighbors because it's true. I was going to be moving and I knew that. And so that is like a material reality that is being structured by capitalism and by landlords and rent and not having enough money and not having housing security. And identitarianism isn't really helping me to understand that, right? Like mm-hmm. I can't really make sense of that experience if my only lens that I'm looking at the situation with is identity. And that's just like one example. But there's many, many things that identity, as if it's our only frame, is not going to help us to understand.
1: Or like it, it might help you feel like you understand it, but it's probably not gonna give you a very good explanation. You or know? clear picture, yeah. yeah. It's like there's this word that I stumbled across recently. I think it's like monocauso taxophilia, I'm pretty sure <laughs> is what it is. And it's like the it's like the obsessive belief that like one there's like one answer for everything or like one thing can help you explain everything. Mm. And it's, it's like a common, like logical fallacy that humans fall into where like we just, we discover something that really seems like it's right. And then we're like, this can explain everything. We can just apply this to everything, you know? And I think that identitarianism is like a, an excellent example of this tendency that humans have. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Kind of monotheism
0: for (laughs) politics, I guess. It's fascinating for me because I see a lot of these identitarianist dynamics play out in the context of tourist cities and the one that I lived in still live around, just not in anymore. And then, of course, the people that I interview who deal with over tourism and, of course, all the crises that come with it. And so, you know, like in the early pandemic, for example, in places like Oaxaca or, or, or Medellin in Colombia, for example... They suddenly became hotspots for digital nomads and, and other tourist es- escapees. And the consequences of over-tourism in these places already existed. But once travel restrictions had dropped and vaccines were doled out, places like this and maybe the more obvious ones like Bali or Hawaii or Barcelona, those consequences exploded And, you know, the the number of visitors skyrocketed, and so both local people and foreigners opened Airbnb after Airbnb, and this is kind of what ended up happening in a lot of places in in the course of, you know, a couple of years, essentially deepening the economic and social divisions in those places. And so what we've seen is that people simply tend to point their finger at the tourists, at the foreigner, ignoring the economic and political issues that affect these things. And so... What's arisen, on the internet at least, uh, have been faceless social media accounts basically cancelling tourists or foreigners for, you know, anything you can think of, for being cheap. Mm-hmm. People complaining about prices on their YouTube video or whatever. And others criticizing local cultures for X, Y, and Z. Uh, Z, pardon me. And uh, some... <laughs> Some who refuse to like to speak the local language for example all of which you know constitutes bad behavior and and even still like other people foreigners who become landlords in their new homes right who move to another country and just you know rent a, a nice place and then put it on airbnb or something and so I'm curious about the individual and why do you think in so many of these cases especially in regards to people who claim to be leftists or anarchists or radicals that the focus is squarely put on individuals or individual behavior, as opposed to the conditions or systems that created that behavior.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, we've become like ludicrously unable to actually look at structural causes of anything in a way that allows us to formulate policy and work towards policy. Like, I think that like one of the major like failings of the the left currently is that it is especially in like the Anglo world like completely fucking unmoored from policy. I think in the u s there's like a really obvious reason for that, which is that there is you know no political party that's even remotely so people, the idea that you could that you could have policy that you like is sort of like nonsense to people in the first place, right? So everything then becomes about either it it would become either about individual behavior or about some sort of like more radical revolutionary option, you know, but the radical revolutionary option doesn't exist. So it's all about the individual behavior and the comparable situation is going on elsewhere in the Anglosphere as well, where the sort of like political avenues for policymaking are severely lacking. So I think that there's this like strong, strong emphasis on the individual on individual behavior on moralizing on sort of angrily saying what should be true rather than working with like, you know, like reality. <laughs> Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think that people. Like, we haven't seen an effective left in our lifetime. Like, you know, like we haven't seen the left making gains like for millennials, like basically for our entire lives. You know, we haven't seen movements be successful. And so we feel very powerless. Like there's a deep, deep sense of powerlessness in the face of capitalism and in the face of climate change um, and in the face of so many of the horrible conditions that we're living under. And we don't have a lot of evidence of things working, but we know we have the power take down some individual person and publicly humiliate them and destroy their life. And so I think people get very addicted to that sense of power because it, Mm. it it is like a bomb to the abject helplessness that we feel under capitalism where we don't have a lot of power to really make the changes that we want to make, you know? But one of the things we're always talking about on the podcast is how cancel culture, while it provides this like temporary relief and this feeling like we're doing something, like we have power. In fact, in fact, it erodes the very conditions that would allow us to have real power. And the conditions that would allow us to have real power are solidarity, right? Like, the one thing that the working class of the world has that the capitalists don't is our numbers, right? Like, Mm. they have all the money and the use of force, you know? But we, there's just lots of us, and also we are the ones who make all their shit, like, or, like, run their little online companies or whatever it is that they're doing now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's like literally the workers of the world are the ones who actually make capitalism run and there are no profits if the workers of the world organized and fucking withdrew their labor, right? But currently we don't have any conditions of like an organized working class movement that could actually threaten to do something like that. And so there's no real avenue. Like unions have been like totally fucking eroded. There's no solidarity. There's no like workers movement that is being effective. I mean, there are attempts at it. Like there was... I don't know what happened with it cuz I'm off social media now and I haven't been checking the news but there was a gigantic like uprising of Bangladeshi textile workers who were like going on strike and like the police were trying to totally shut them down. I don't know what ended up happening. Kind of disappeared mm. off my radar, but I think any movement for solidarity, you know, cancel culture bullshit aside cuz honestly it is such a distraction, like it's annoying and it's a distraction, would have to move towards like international solidarity. And I think that mm. this is something that we don't even have, like, solidarity, like, where we live, let alone mm. solidarity, like, across the globe with workers in different places, you know? But under global capitalism, I think we're going to have to start looking with an internationalist lens and thinking about what would it look like to have the workers of the world actually mm. uniting.
1: Yeah, <laughs> It reminds me of gentrification, you know? It's like individual gentrifiers are sure like annoying right you know people who sort of like don't belong there and are bringing their like annoying habits into the neighborhood or whatever you know and driving up prices and all this but at the end of the day this is like a structural issue that can only be solved by policy right you can't you can't just sort of like be hostile towards gentrifiers and expect that to sort of like end up with anything other than you being angry and other people perhaps being frightened for like a couple of years until the process of gentrification is complete. And Mm. I think that, you know, there's like a similar thing with tourism, you know, I mean, tourism is just kind of like gentrification on like a, an international scale in a certain sense. Steroids. Yeah. 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 I mean, here
0: in Oaxaca, tourism is like 85, 90% of the economy in the center of the city. And so it's all changing really quickly, wherein people are sometimes hearing more English than Spanish in the streets, right? Not just Mm. in Oaxaca, but in other places as well. So there's this relative and understandable kind of resentment against the foreigner. But then when we have these gatherings and, you know, people ask me, well, like, what, what should we do? And I say, well, go talk to the tourist. Like, you can build solidarity with that person, even if it's by them understanding what's going on here and maybe not coming back as an extreme example, right? But what's also happened as a result, not just this waving or wagging the finger at the individual, but also in the context of identitarianism, reconvening the nation state. And so my next question is, kind of feeds off of the first and has to do with the effects or consequences of this kind of pseudo-cancel culture that arises from tourism crises in places like Oaxaca and others. And so what you tend to see are locals identifying tourists or foreigners based on skin color. In Latin America, you know, the tourist is by and large the gringo or the gringa basically a white American and what's happening as a result especially among people who consider themselves again leftist or anarchists, is that they end up self-identifying in opposition to the foreigner and so what we see is an over-identification or what I will call anyways an over-identification with one's own skin color class and especially especially now nationality and so understanding the other as American means I'm Mexican or Colombian Or whatever right and I'm curious whether or not either of you consider identitarianism to be a child of nationalism or how nationalism fits into these contemporary understandings of identitarianism
1: right right well okay I I definitely have some thoughts about that for sure I would say that like nationalism is certainly one of the kind of original modern identities right and it was very much like crafted on purpose to, to be that, which I think that a lot of people don't know unless they've like, you know, done like a sociology degree or something. But nationalism and the nation itself was like a modern invention created a couple of hundred years ago for specific political purposes, namely to unite quite disparate populations within at that time mainly like European countries, and to try to get the children of those people to think of themselves as like French instead of Breton, mm. you know, and to get them to speak French instead of Breton, right, as an example. And there are similar cases all over Europe. Anyways, that being aside, yes, like nationalism certainly is like a form of identity and one of the most important forms of modern identity. I think that when we talk about identitarianism, often we end up not talking about nationalism very much because on the left nationalism tends to be sort of like not the most important identity it's one that you kind of downplay especially if your nationality is one of the privileged western rich nationalities right however obviously if your nationality might you know get you points in in whatever sort of like game you're playing then you might you might play it up um
2: Yeah. I have a couple things to say about this. I mean, one, the nexus or social justice culture that we talk about on fucking canceled comes out of the United States of America and the United States of America. They don't know that they're in the United States of America. So
1: this might be surprising (laughs) to people because of the number of flags that are everywhere in America, but they don't know that they're in America.
2: They think they're just in the world. They think that that is the world, you know? And so there is this like, this lack of awareness or like basically they're not contextualizing what they're thinking and doing in an American context, even though it is. And then they're exporting that to the rest of the world, especially like English speaking places, but then it like leaks out from there. But it is an American way of understanding things based in an American context and an American history, right? And so you see this a lot with identitarianism where the popular framings and understandings around race, for example, that are going around social justice culture right now are specifically coming out of an American context and American constructions around race. And they don't map on perfectly. To other contexts. But because it's being exported, because Americans are exporting their culture all over the world, we in other places are expected to just take it on and to start using that framework. And people do, but it doesn't really work properly. It doesn't really make sense in a different context. So that is a way in which like nation kind of disappears, even though it is operating in the way that identity is actually being shaped. Another thing that happens, and Jay and I were just talking about this for an upcoming episode, Another thing that happens is that because in North America anyway, like we don't really use nation as a category in thought, mm. what ends up happening is that people actually racialize their national identity, in know, in a weird way to make it make sense in identitarianism. Mm. And so one of the ways that this can happen is that people from South America who are white in a North American context are sometimes racialized and considered people of color because they are not speaking like English as a first language, for example, or because there's cultural markers that are showing them as not North American. And so therefore they are impacted by various types of discrimination and so on and so forth. But in their context, they are actually racialized as white. But then he, in, in North America, they, be, may, they may be racialized as non-white. And so this actually comes through like, a, I mean, first of all, it shows that race is like a made up category that can shift and be expressed in different ways. But also it is partially like the narcissism of North America that can't conceptualize difference, basically, and understand that like a person can actually be white and from South America and speak Mm. Spanish, for example.
1: Which, like, this can also sometimes... We were joking about this, too, because it's true. Like, this can also sometimes extend to people not being sure about, for example, like, Portuguese people and sort of, like, racializing Portuguese people on the basis of their sort of supposed affinity with, like, Latin America. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. One thing that I want to mention, too, just reminding me of this because of my research that that you mentioned, is that, like, racialism... Which is the idea that race is important and and as a major identity category that people should care about a lot, let's put it that way, has often existed very uneasily with nationalism. And so for a lot of like neo-nazis, they're not necessarily like opposed to nationalism, but they would, They would treat racial affinity with much more importance than they would a national affinity, especially when the national affinity is seen to have been kind of, uh, polluted by mm. like foreign elements, for example, you know, and a, a big part of the national project has been to say that like, we are all members of this national identity, sort of like, no matter who we are, blah, blah, blah. blah right. And obviously some of us are more than others, right. It has usually ha- is how it's gone, but it tries to integrate like many different like groups of people, including, you know, in the United States, for example, including like black Americans. Right. And You know, the project of the integrated military, for example, has been a big part of the American national imaginary. But if you're a white racist, you're not interested in a sort of national identity that that includes black Americans as well. Right. And this is also somewhat true on the left in different ways. But yeah, I'll just put that out there.
2: Yeah. And then I guess the only other last thing I would like to say about this is that when we are anti-essentialist and anti-identitarian on the left, one of the things that that like an, an anti-racism that is rooted in an opposition to essentialism will argue and put forth is that race is a constructed and made up concept, right? Which is something that I believe race is not a real thing. It is like racism is real, but racism is based on the invention of this way of dividing up people based on race. And so there's a lot of anti-essentialist leftists who are arguing this. But one thing that is important is to not confuse race, which is a made-up category, with culture and ethnicity, which are real things, right? And one of the things, like, Jay and I have been talking about when we're going to do an episode about this or, like, related to these ideas is, like, we actually care a lot about things like – language protection, culture protection, like the importance of people being able to keep and protect their cultural identities is like, Mm. it's a very important thing in respecting people's like human dignity. And in Canada, where colonialism has so thoroughly attacked indigenous Canadian people's cultures, they don't have their languages anymore. And like protecting language is like hugely important for people's mental health and well-being, right? So... Dividing those two things—that being like saying race isn't real—doesn't mean that we're not in favor of protecting culture and language.
0: Yeah, right, right, right. Of course. What's interesting about the, I guess, the reactions to over tourism here—it's not just that, oh, the gringo is an American, so I'm a Mexican, but it's also racialized. It's also okay. So who I see on the street, white people, and because I'm dark skinned, it reinforces those dualities, binaries, etc but it re-racializes local people. And in the context of Mexico, anyways, the roots of their understandings of their racializedness, if I can say that, comes from the imposition of race, of races by the Spaniards onto them and saying, this is who you are now, 400 years ago, right? Uh-huh. And so the new invasion, the tourism, right, is, is recapitulating that dynamic in ways in which people internalized the racial impositions that were put on them 400 years ago, or their ancestors, right, I should say. So it's just mind-boggling.
2: Yeah, I think I think it's interesting though, right? Because how do we hold like the importance of culture and language and ethnicity while also acknowledging that those things were always shifting, changing, mm. like we're never a static, constant thing, you know, that always included diversity and within it, language is always changing and evolving. Culture is always changing and evolving, but also those things are real things that you can speak about and point to and definitely notice when they're stolen from you or when you're no longer allowed to speak your language, right? Mm. So... Yeah, like I think we tend to go to extremes. It's either like it doesn't exist or it's not important or it's like a very essential like static thing that has always only been one thing.
0: Hmm, yeah, and also for lack of history, right? I've been doing this investigation into Macedonian culture, ethnicity, history, etc., in part because my father is a first generation immigrant to Toronto, but from Aegean Macedonia, and You know, the Ottoman Empire was there controlling those lands for four or 500 years. And so the Ottomans were Muslim, and the Macedonians weren't Macedonians to them. They were Christians. They were a Christian race, regardless of their language. And then when the Ottoman Empire fell, the Greeks and the Bulgarians ended up fighting over that territory, that land, that a lot of people considered to be Macedonian. Uh, And so the Greeks and the Bulgarians referred to the, the Macedonians as the Macedonian race, no longer the Christian race, but the Macedonian race. So anyways, beyond that, once you get into the 20th century and start speaking in a global context, it's like, no, 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 they're not the Macedonian race, they're a white race from Macedonia, right? And so just this idea that race is inherently tied to skin color is very contemporary, and it depends, of course, where it's coming from and who it's coming from, right? This idea of what race is becomes very fluid. I wanted to ask you two about escapism. I was just listening to your episode on freedom as a in mm. the day. one of your most recent episodes, and in it you two speak of carceral institutions, jails, obviously, and I don't think it's very difficult to imagine how... A touristic worldview, one built around escapism, arises so fervently among people who feel powerless to change the conditions in the culture that are oppressive and domineering. At the same time, the glorification and commodification of that escapism through tourism creates a kind of a a culture of abandonment and disposability in the sense that you're leaving behind all your people, and then once you get to this place, well, you're actually not responsible for anything you do there because it's, it's not my people, not my home. Yeah. And so I'm curious, do you think that the freedom that is usually couched in the freedom of movement has limits? And what do you make of the the inability to stay still in the, the context of all this? <laughs>
1: Man. Yeah. I mean, it just makes me think about my own sort of like internal struggles that I have where like, basically like whenever I'm not doing very well, I have this part of me that wants nothing more than to just fuck off and, and travel sort of like indefinitely. It's like one of my strongest like internal urges, you know, I don't know. I just keep thinking about that. But yeah, I mean, another thing that comes to mind for me that is not not a direct answer to your question, but it's just something that's coming up for me is that like, I think for like so many people in the wealthy West, you know, they live in places that are comfortable because they're in the wealthy West, but they're like psychologically so destructive because it's just like these like vistas of like parking lots and like box stores and like depressing nothing places that Mm. no one could ever love and i think that like for a lot of people and i hate to say this because it sounds like snobbish you know but it's like whether or not they know it they are being psychologically attacked by the fucking places that they live You Mm. know, and there's a part of them that is like i want nothing more than to get out of here you know Mm. and see something beautiful (laughs) and my question is sort of like why can't we live in beautiful places, you know? Mm. And, Mm. and I actually like do live in a beautiful place and I love where I live, you know, and the neighborhood in Montreal where I live is like gorgeous, you know, Mm. it's a beautiful place to just walk around, look at stuff. It's very fucking pretty. And there's a reason why I live here, you know, and I lived in other parts of the city and, and I gave up, you know, bigger, cheaper apartments to live here because I like how it looks and I like how it makes me feel to sort of Mm. like leave my house and fucking walk around and other people like it too. Millions of people come to Montreal as tourists. That's true. We actually have tourists in this neighborhood. And and like when I leave my house and like walk around the corner, there's like lineups of tourists, you know, that I have to sort of like navigate to like get to the gym because they're flocking around because it's fucking nice here. But Mm. like a lot of places in North America are really not nice. They're not nicest places Mm. to look at. They're not nice places to live. You can't fucking walk anywhere, Mm. even if you wanted to. You know, everything basically looks the same as everything else, you know, and yeah, it's not surprising to me that people would want to get out of there, right? Also, though, as I say this, it's not just North America that people come from when they're tourists, right? right. And we're seeing like a gigantic increase in tourism from countries like China. Japan has always produced a lot of tourists, you know? So I think like part of it is just that like as people get wealthier, the desire to just see different things and whatever is always present in people. And if they can do it, like there's no particular reason why they wouldn't. But I think that it's, it's definitely worth trying to imagine what travel could look like and what like guesthood could look Mm -hmm. like, you know, outside of a context where it's all just like this very commodified process that is not necessarily very great for the people who are on the kind of like hosting end of it. But yeah, again, like I live in a heavily touristed city, but apart from the tourists being quite annoying to have to walk around like when there's like snow everywhere and they're taking up the whole sidewalk apart from that. And the fact that like Airbnbs are a big problem in Montreal, they don't bother me much here. And I think that like a big part of that is just that like, you know, Montreal is a very wealthy city, you mm. know, so like an influx of like wealthy foreigners doesn't like impact it that much other than to sort of like inject cash into the economy, which is not such a bad thing. Right. And I do think that like part of the answer to all this is that we, we need to be like taking seriously um, internationalist solidarity and like the development of places that are not as developed, and it reminds me of like sort of debates about immigration to mm. the West. You know, and it's like immigration is complicated topic, and people have lots of different opinions about it. But like a lot of people on the liberal left will 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 act like immigration is all by itself, like an amazing, awesome thing always. And then people on the right will act like it's this terrible thing always. And I'm like, I don't know, it's kind of a neutral thing, you know, like there are good and bad things about it. Obviously people being able to travel is like a nice thing. I'll just say this. Like, I think that like immigration is a good thing when the places that people are coming from are not so undeveloped or so poor that it's like forcing people out. You know what I mean? And yeah, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> that, was, that was like five different tangents. So it like, it's great. Love it.
2: So what what is coming up for me is I saw this drawing that was like of whales swimming in the ocean. And it was like basically saying something like borders aren't real because like there's no borders in the ocean for, for whales or whatever. And this is part of this like thing on the left. and It's kind of related to what Jay was just saying that like on the left, we do have this. This big, like, belief in things like open borders or just free movement, free travel as, like, this positive and kind of obviously good thing that we should support. And I understand it. But at the same time, the fantasy that there aren't different areas in the natural world is false. There might not be borders, but there are biomes. And one of the things about travel that I don't think gets talked about a lot, and that is a big issue with like environmental destruction, is actually the reality of biomes and the fact that the movement of people across the world at the rapid way that we do it now is moving plants, microbes, fungus Mm. from biome to biome. And in different biomes, the way that evolution works is that like those ecosystems were totally separate for all of this time. and then. When some new plant, animal, microbe, fungus gets into this new ecosystem, it may be that the other beings that live there have no defense against it, right? And then it causes massive problems, such as what goes on with invasive species. But, like, just as a random example, like, one of the major things that's causing extinction of bats is the introduction of this fungus into North America that comes from Europe or something. And it comes on like tourists. They come and they Mm. don't know that they have it on them because it's just like little fungus. And then they go and they visit bat caves and then they accidentally affect the bats and the bats are all getting sick and dying, you know? And so I just bring up this random example because the question of like, what does it mean to be responsible when we go somewhere? When even us just going can cause problems that we didn't intend, you Mm. know? And it is a really complicated question. I'm not saying I necessarily have the answer, but especially from an environmental perspective, even if we get climate change under control, even if we deal with you know fossil fuels which we're not even close to dealing with but even if we deal with that we would still have this big question of if we are going to continue to travel say we get rid of planes and then we have like airships and we're able to fly in a way that's not killing the climate Mm. we still have this big question about what it means when we're bringing things on our clothes by accident and i'm kind of like instead of like security at airports like i wonder if there could be like these places where we go in and we basically have to like leave our things and like when we arrive we get like a special clothes that we wear i don't know what it would look like like, because we're carrying fungus on our clothes.
1: Yeah. So it, it would be really interesting to think about borders in a better world, you know, and what that might look like, because I can imagine something like where it's like a supranational kind of like agreement between different countries and stuff. And like the border is the border of the biome, not the border between the countries, you know?
2: Yeah. And and that was just talking about it on like an environmental level, which I do think is very important and doesn't really get talked about enough. But I also think we can look at this on a human level where, you know, if we're thinking about like invasive species and like a a plant coming in and just growing and taking over, we can also think about how when we bring, you know, for example, English, we can think about English as an invasive Mm. species, you know, like English is a species that's going to go there. And because it's the language that if people speak more than one language, one of the languages that they speak might be English because it's kind of like taken over the world then it means more and more people are going to be speaking English and then other languages are, are going to start dying out. And so this is like literally what an invasive plant species does, you know? And so I think we need to think about that when we're bringing English into a space. Like, what are we doing in that space? How are we changing that space by bringing English into it? And I say that very self-consciously as a unilingual English speaker. But it is, you know, like... So, like, this idea of what it means to be a responsible guest, what it means to be somewhere, to visit somewhere, we need to think about not even just the the more obvious things like throwing our garbage around or being totally disrespectful or mm. using a place as a party spot and then leaving. Like, all of those things, I think, are very obviously disrespectful and we need to be more considerate. But there's even more subtle ways where just our very presence and the way that we bring ourselves can have an impact that we don't intend that I think is part of the conversation about what it can mean to to travel in a more ethical and responsible way.
0: Mm. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I'm reminded of, and I don't know, how relevant it is for the conversation, but I'm reminded of Terence McKenna, the great psychedelic bard. We had a hypothesis that the main vehicle of evolutionary change or growth wasn't human beings or mammals, for example, but language. And we were just vehicles for languages evolution and spreading. (laughs) And that languages are just fighting the secret battle, the secret war. But anyways, to speak to what both of you are saying, I interviewed a man named Daniel Pardo in the first season of The Pod, this activist from Barcelona, and he said, you know, in no way can tourism be sustainable because we can't extend it to everyone on the planet. Like, it's actually impossible to ensure that 7 or 8 billion people can go on vacation once a year, or fly, right? He said there's no right to fly. And so it's important to ensure that people have these freedoms, but then to what extent can they actually be applied? And I remember being back in Toronto last summer for a few months, and there were whole families and communities of migrants sleeping in front of churches on the street, because from what I understand, the Canadian government, the year previous, had let in something like a million migrants, and maybe half of them went to Toronto because it's the financial hub of the country. And there was simply nothing for them there. There was no plan for them by the government. There was no jobs, no social support, nothing, right? And so they ended up on the street, sleeping on the street in front of churches, en masse. In terms of the people that I knew who grew up there, and myself, we had never seen that before. And so again, you can create the freedom to migrate and things like that, but what is at the end of that movement? Right. So there are definitely these dynamics and nuances that need to be spoken of in terms of travel and the way people travel and the borders and, and biomes that affect the way we move. Yeah, and of course, I could go on and on. I have uh, two more questions for you two, if that's all right.
2: Sure. Okay.
0: So on some of the fucking cancelled podcast episodes, you have subtitled the theme of the quest for the offline left and you know I think largely emphasizing the word offline and so you know what do you think being together offline and organizing offline can do to people whose lives have been shaped around online and social media mentalities I mean the three of us are more or less of the age that we still have a lived memory of life before the internet but what about those who don't
2: Absolutely horrifying. I mean, I think we are social animals who evolved to be together, looking at each other's faces, like talking and being in the same space together. Like the alienation that Jay was talking about before, like both leads to our compulsive social media use and our desperate attempt to find community through that and also completely contributes and worsens the problem, making it a million times worse where we are staring at our phones when we are literally actually physically together and could be having a conversation. And that is really like sad and depressing. And I think that in terms of organizing across difference, building solidarity with people, like on the internet, we can believe that a community is people who share either like an interest or an identity category with us. And that is a community online. Whereas in real life, community is going to be full of people who are not necessarily like ourselves, whom we, we might not share interests in common with, and we may, we might not share identities in common with, but they actually are the people who are in our spaces in real life. And we actually share many things in common with them that we may not realize because we share a place together. We share a world together and being able to build relationships with people who are different from ourselves is first of all, absolutely necessary as a political strategy. If we want to get anything done on the Left, but also it's deeply enriching for our, our human lives, you know, to be able to meet and talk to people who are not exactly the same, not the same age, not not sharing the same politics. Like we're just different from ourselves. So I think it's very important. The other thing is like the absolute erosion of our attention span due to social media. I have recently not been on Instagram for like a month and I feel like my brain is like damaged and I'm like recovering from a a severe damage to my attention span, you know, like I wasn't able to read books for years because I just didn't have an attention span to like really keep up with it. It was like way harder for me than it used to be when I was younger, you know, because I have been on the feed that is giving me just five second blips of information and then giving me something else getting my brain hooked on this like dopamine response cycle, which is absolutely horrifying. So, I think it's also really bad for us, like mentally, in terms of our ability to think critically and at length and to like pay attention to what we're thinking about.
1: Yeah. I think that the internet gives people the illusion that things are happening that, that are not actually happening. Mm. You know, like, I don't know, you make a, a, a really good post and 2,000 people like it. Wow. Okay. They're all scattered across the fucking planet. You know what I mean? It mm-hmm. doesn't you don't know them. It doesn't translate into anything, right? Mm. It feels good and you feel like maybe you're influencing the discourse or something like that, you know? But it doesn't translate into anything. And it can give you it can give you the idea that like to be politically active and to be politically successful is to get more people liking your fucking posts or whatever, you know? But it's not true, right? It also gives people the illusion and Clementine was gesturing at this, that uh, a group of people it's not even really a group it's like a category of people that are like you is a meaningful sort of group to be in but let's say like take like queer people like LGBTQ community okay and then you extrapolate that to like the whole world or you could even just extrapolate it to like North America you know that's like a scattering of people that are spread out over this enormous geographic area. You couldn't possibly meet them all, not only cuz there's so many of them, but also because they're so scattered, right? And you couldn't possibly organize them all and like and so on. And and it's not a community. It's not a community. It is it's like there's a word I'm looking for and I was I've been trying to think of it for the past like 5 minutes, but I'm just going to say it's like an electorate or something mm-hmm. rather than like rather than like a community, you know? It's like this it's this like demographic group that like marketers might market to or mm. that politicians might try to get to vote for them or something like that. But that's not that's not what a community is. That's not what a real group is like a real group automatically encompasses difference like a a sort of like authentic human group like always has differences of like age and occupation and often ethnicity and all these sorts of internal differences that you know, human groups have always had. Right. And when we try to sort of like make these groups based on identity, which the internet makes very, very, very easy. Mm. We like miss the people that were actually (laughs) around. Like, yeah. But yeah, as for the offline left, I mean, we desperately need to be organizing in, in the real world. And I think that that's not to say that like you can't do anything on the internet. Like the internet obviously has massive advantages for many, many reasons, you know, fuck. There's this like, there's this like image in my head. I'm a very like visual person. I get these like pictures in my head and then I'm like, I have to explain this picture. But it's like the, the thing about like the, the, the groups being this, these kind of like electorates. It's like, if you are this electorate, then your only choice is to sort of petition your leaders to do something Mm. for you. You Mm. you know what I mean? But like, if you are a, a real and authentic community, you can organize your community to enact something. In the real world, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I I don't want us to always be in the position of petitioning our leaders because it presupposes the leaders. It presupposes that we accept their authority, you know? It presupposes Mm -hmm. that we don't have another option other than to allow a tiny class of parasitical, like rich people to rule everything for us, you know? But I would like us to move away from that, right?
2: Yeah. Like, just one other thing about that is you'll see, you know, this gesturing towards actual organizing but through posting, but Mm -hmm. it's missing the actual organizing piece, which involves building relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And building trust. And so one of the things you'll, you'll see, like in the last couple of years, I've seen it a few times with different political things that are going on where people will just randomly call for like a mass strike and they'll make a post about it. And they'll be like, on this day, we are calling for people to strike for like this political issue. I saw it for like abortion rights in the United States, and I recently saw it for Solidarity with Palestine. But it's like people can't just walk out of their jobs randomly, because they will be fired. Like The point of unions and the point of organized labor is that you have this guarantee where all of these people are taking this risk together in an organized and strategic way, and they are trusting each other that they're doing it together and it is their numbers that makes it so that the boss can't just fire them all, right? And they have strike funds. There's a lot of them Mm. and they're supporting each other to do this and it's organized and they've actually built enough relationship to be like, okay, I trust that my fellow workers are going to do this with me. So like when I take this risk, it's like the, the risk is mitigated by the numbers and I know I'm not alone in it, right? But a social media post cannot produce that. It is not relationship. And so random people reading that like they're should i just walk out of my job tomorrow? Like probably if they do that they're going to be the only person at mm-hmm. their job who's right. doing that and they're just going to be fired or reprimanded best case scenario. And that is not organized at all. And and so mm-hmm. the people are like why aren't you guys walking out of your job? This is not solidarity. And it's like you're right. It's not solidarity because the solidarity hasn't been built. Like mm. you have to actually build trust with people to get them to take risks. And if you don't build that trust and you don't have those actual real relationships, it's not a good idea for people to take those risks because they'll be by themselves taking those risks.
0: Mm. Yeah. It begs the question if in order to have solidarity with
1: people elsewhere, does it have to exist at home first?
2: I would say, yeah. Absolutely. I would say I mean, that it yeah.
1: does. <laughs> And solidarity is kind of meaningless if it's just you. Like mm. it, it kind of has to be organized, you know, like mm. in in some meaningful fashion and right. that can take place in a small scale or a large scale. But if if it's just you feeling solidaristic, like it doesn't. Like-
2: yeah. Like, for example, with the Bangladeshi textile workers, you know, if there was organized labor in North America and say, for example, that like the H&Ms were unionized, mm. which I do not think that they are. But if the H&Ms were unionized. Because like the clothing at H&M all comes from Bangladesh, the workers could choose to do a solidarity strike Mm. to strike alongside the Bangladeshi workers so that the retailers were striking alongside the textile workers. Right. Mm. And that would be very effective and very cool if that was happening. But in order for that to happen, the retail workers first have to be organized and they have to have unions and they actually have to have like an organized labor force here in order to do any kind of meaningful action in solidarity with the workers in Bangladesh.
0: Food for thought. Yeah, thank you both. So my final question of the main themes of the pod, one is radical hospitality, which to me at least stands as a kind of antidote to industrial hospitality. You know, the systems, the hotels, the restaurants that, that produce expectation and entitlement, especially when people go abroad, right? I paid my money, so I deserve this, et cetera. The word radical in that term means rooted. And... So for me, what it means to be rooted in a place, rooted together, and uh, maybe even reciprocally generous. So I can only imagine the kind of volatility that might come your way as a result of naming the nexus and broadcasting fucking cancelled. And so I'm curious, as socialists and people committed to organizing towards new and better worlds, what kind of radical hospitality
1: do you think might be required for those... Worlds to be born. Very, very interesting question. For me, like the first thing that comes up is that the the idea of radical hospitality is almost like the inverse of alienation in a certain mm. way. And like our intense disconnect from one another, it's like the negation of hospitality. You know, it's like I don't want to be hospitable because I don't know you and I don't owe you. You know, mm. and I think that that's how like a lot of people feel. And it's not even necessarily their fault for feeling that, you know, it's the world we live in, you know, but I think hospitality obviously is like a good quality and an important thing and it builds community and it builds connection. And I think that community and connection are incredibly important for people. For me, I really want social movements and a socialism, whatever it ends up looking like, a socialism for the 21st century that takes alienation seriously as like a major problem to be tackled. And that is like actively trying to build policy to like undermine alienation and bring people together more, which is difficult. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. You know, I think that it's going to be like a complicated thing, but I think that alienation is as much of a problem at this point as like many of the other sort of like evils of capitalism. It's hurting people a lot. I think that Mm -hmm. it's producing this absolutely gnarly fucking epidemic of mental illness and despair and addiction and i think that people are like utterly traumatized by it and we need to be working we need to be working against it and i think this like a concept like radical hospitality is a really interesting and beautiful one that could be part of that
2: yeah i think the first thing that comes up for me is just the concept of like reciprocity and like how that is connected to trust And it's very hard to give with an open heart when you don't believe that you are going to receive. Mm. Um, And when you're very exhausted and very depleted, it is very hard to be generous, you know? And I think a lot of people are in that state where, like, they're not feeling very generous because they don't feel like they have what they need. And they're worried that if they give, they're not going to receive, you know? And so... It's kind of like uh, somebody always has to go first. If you're caught in a cycle of everybody in a mentality of scarcity, that's just going to keep reproducing until somebody starts to shift towards generosity. But it is also true that you can get yourself in a situation where you are being consistently generous to people who are not being reciprocal right? Which is also not good. Generosity also needs to be bounded and self-respecting in the sense that you are not turning yourself into a resource that is just being exploited, you know? And so that is like that trust building. It's like, if I'm offering radical hospitality, am I also receiving it? Not necessarily as like a one-to-one, like right. this, where we're keeping a book to make sure it's all exactly the same, but is there a general sense of reciprocity in the relationship? And that can be expressed in a lot of different ways. In terms of when you were just talking about our work and the work that we do and like the extreme hostility that we receive from certain people for talking about these things, one of the things that has been beautiful for us is the hospitality that we have received from the listeners of the podcast who have receive so much from our work because I'm sure you can understand as a podcaster yourself is a labor of love, but it's definitely a labor of love. It's a huge amount of work and Mm. you're not really getting paid for it, or at least we're not getting paid for it to the degree that would actually be like sustaining. And it's a struggle and we're like always trying to make it work. But the listeners, you know, who have been very impacted by our work and who feel very grateful for it have definitely shown us that gratitude. And when we were on tour, we toured independently, no funding, just just a couple of punks like in my little car. And it was our fans who put us up all across America. It was our fans who put us up, who helped us make that happen in one city. We had an event planned and then we got canceled. We got literally pushed out of the, like, conference that we were supposed to do due to Mm. cancellation bullshit. Mm. But we had already put that city on our tour and, like, a a fan, like, hosted us in his living room so that we could still do, you know do our event in that city which was really cool and he put us up and everything too so you know I think that, that there are people who see the risks that we take in doing this work and they want mm. to do that reciprocity and they want to like give us something back and make mm. us feel like welcomed and safe doing something that they know is very risky so I appreciate that and that is like an example of just people doing that like mutuality and, and reciprocity in action
0: mm. Mm. thank you both yeah, and I hope that you know through some of our conversation today that this has given a bit of an opportunity for your words and your work to have a platform among you know people who are dealing with these these questions of gentrification and migration and of course tourism. Before before we finish, Jay, I, I just remember the authenticity.
1: Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wrote a paper once in like my undergrad about tourism and authenticity. And Mm. for some reason, it's like the only paper from my undergrad that I like still remember, you know, but I think that I was like onto something with that paper. And it's just interesting how with tourism, like a huge focus is on selling an authentic experience to the tourist. Mm. And yet everyone involved, including the tourists are aware that it's inauthentic as soon as you sell it. Basically, that is like the sort of like definition of what makes something inauthentic to most people is that like when you sell it, it's not authentic anymore, especially when it's like an experience, you know? And yeah, I just think that this like process of sort of like inventing authenticity and then selling it when everybody's aware that it's not authentic is like very, very on brand for late capitalism and is like also something that's going on in like the rest of our, our lives and something I don't know. It's just something I think about
0: a lot. Well, it comes comes home to roost, right? The whole tourism worldview or touristic worldview, and, the, and like the desire for the for the authentic. We have all the the labels now: organic and fair trade, and all that stuff. And it's like you, there's still no chance that you buying that coffee is going to get you any closer to a relationship with the people who made it or the land uh-huh. that it was made on you know and all that stuff
1: right yeah yeah I think it's interesting I I actually I have like a question for you you know because you were like a backpacker for a long time and I think that like part of the whole thing about backpacking is that it's more authentic you know because Mm. you're not really being like a tourist exactly you know because you're not going on tours right and you're not like staying at like hotels and or like airbnbs you're sort of like making your own way and like staying with locals or like in hostels or like whatever and do you think that what you were doing was substantially different from mainstream tourism or did you get kind of like jaded by that in the end
0: yeah i guess like to some degree it's I could say that one could say that it's less choreographed right mm-hmm. there's less uh expectation. I think there's still probably the same amount of entitlement uh, that people could have or feel, uh, but there's less expectation um because it's not as not as choreographed but I did an interview recently where um my friend. Patrick, he, he asked me like, so what's the difference between a tourist and a traveler, right? And I said, well, you know, based on all the people that I've talked to and all the episodes that have done the interviews and all that, it seems that people want to make a distinction between these things because they want to justify their version of doing it. Or they don't want to look like the stereotype of the ugly tourist or whatever. But at the end of the day, almost everything you do as a backpacker or a tourist is housed in the tourism infrastructure, right? You still have to get on a plane to go where you're going. You still have to take those buses, you know? Maybe just because you're not with 30 or 40 other tourists doesn't mean that the same dynamics aren't happening, you know? Surely there's a degree of difference in it, but you you can go to, like a lot of Canadians, go to Cuba, sit on a beach for a week, eat and drink Mm -hmm. whatever they want, or all all that they can. Or, you know, you could... Go in like I did and and spend like two months, you know, in the middle of nowhere in Peru, right? But at the end of the day, everything that happens uh, there is temporary and therefore disposable. Mm -hmm. Nobody has or nobody questions the degree of consequence that they have in that place once they're gone, right? And even if you did question that, you could never know. So... Hmm. I think that that kind of, you know, brings it back around a little bit to that question of like, you can you can be a tourist in the place that you live, in the city that you were born in. like it, I have these questions sometimes when I wonder about like, you know, my friends and family back home after being gone for eight years. You know, my sister has two kids and all that stuff. So my parents are getting older, you know, all that stuff. So how do we understand ourselves as people of consequence in the places we live? And anyways, I think that that's, to me, where I can offer... A deep bow of, of solidarity to you two for your work because I think that's kind of where they 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 find the themselves woven together a little bit is a place where we find the ability to either respond or we find out how we have been removed or obscured or or just made handicapped from the ability to respond in a good way. So mm. so yeah. So on behalf of our listeners, thank you too so much for your time today. And I know you have a lot of podcast episodes online and also a lot of writing projects. And maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about those before we depart.
2: Mm-hmm. So Where you can, can find depart. the podcast at fuckingcancel.com. And you can also find it, like most places, you listen to to podcasts, so spotify or apple or whatever if you just look up fucking canceled maybe fucking canceled podcast it's got
1: two l's because we're canadian oh yeah
2: we're canadian so it has two l's and my writing you can find at clementine i have a sub stack there that you can subscribe to and i also make zines and and books which you can check out in the shop at, at clementine com.
1: yeah my writing is jayla com. it's all up there so yeah thanks so much for having us mate. yeah
2: thanks for having us
1: and the dumplings and domination is that right oh yeah <laughs> dumplings and domination yeah so far there's only one episode out and i told myself that i'm going to be boundary about it and try not to treat it too much like a job and just do it for fun so who knows when the next one's going to come up but that's also on Com. like for now i'm just putting them up as posts on my Substack. so yeah awesome cool well, make sure that all those
0: links are up there on the End of Tourism website and Substack as well when it comes out. And uh, thank you guys so much for, for your time. Right
2: yeah. on, man. How are we doing? Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pod. If what you heard had its way with you, if it left you with more questions than answers, then click subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or directly at chrischristu.substack.com. You can also follow us on social media via the handle The End of Tourism. I'd like to especially thank Alexi Galar for his assistance in the post-production process of this episode and many others in this season of the pod. You can check out his sound design and original music work at alexegalar.com. If you'd like to support the pod in other ways, we'd love assistance in the form of post-production editing and promotion or anything else you feel called to offer. Until next time. Farewell, friends.